Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Episode 186 of The Bowery Boys, Hell's Kitchen, The Wild West. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today, we're taking a trip to Midtown Manhattan's far west side, to that neighborhood with a rather demonic name, Hell's Kitchen. Despite the demonic nature of the neighborhood, it is today one of our favorite neighborhoods. We find ourselves frequenting uh, this district's small restaurants and bars. It lies just west of the theater district and in the middle of Midtown West. Yet it was once one of New York's toughest and roughest neighborhoods. For most of its existence, or at least for almost 150 years, it was a working-class neighborhood. Well, it certainly is one of the city's most colorful neighborhoods, and today's story will take us through a cast of characters and gangsters and dust-ups that you might expect to read about in a dime-store novel. Now, I should just throw this out there. We understand that this was a neighborhood where people have lived normal lives that many people have fond memories of growing up, but we're going to focus on the riots, the gangs, the violence, the surliness. And we're going to explore the various theories surrounding the origins of the neighborhood's name. Where did it get this name, Hell's Kitchen? There are several theories, many of them quite probable, and a couple that are pretty far-fetched. So join us as we go west into the wild, steamy story of Hell's Kitchen. Okay, we're recording in the summer, and it's July of 2015, and it is pretty steamy in mm. our recording booth here, so <laughs> so we're in... Like, it re- smells like the streets <laughs> of Hell's Kitchen in here. We're in the proper environment to uh, break down the story, but first, of course, let me situate Hell's Kitchen. Ah, uh, yes, because this is a neighborhood, it has borders, right? They're pretty simple. Well, fairly simple. Let me explain. This neighborhood is in Midtown Manhattan on the west. Now, the eastern border of this neighborhood, most can agree, is 8th Avenue, right? The western border 
is, of course, the Hudson River. Now, right. right, but it's more of the north and south borders that have sort of changed, fluctuated over the years. All right, let's start at the south. Today, most New Yorkers would call the southern border perhaps around 42nd Street because there's still a lot of activity. There's theaters all around 42nd Street, of sure. course. And I guess when you're in Hell's Kitchen today and you're walking down 9th Avenue, when you hit 42nd Street in the, in the bus terminal, you kind of feel like that's <laughs> yeah. the end of the neighborhood. But historically, it's actually gone further south, down to 34th Street. Some would even say down to 30th Street. I even read a couple references saying down to 23rd Street. So it's mm. a pretty long stretch of the western side. Okay, and how about the northern border? There's a little bit more consensus to that. 57th Street is sometimes called the northern border. 59th Street, around Columbus Circle, is more or less a marker that people use. Okay, Um, but it's funny, right, because this neighborhood isn't really centered around anything particular. No, interestingly, there's no major park or anything that a neighborhood can coalesce around. It's actually affected by a lot of these forces that are defining it from the outside. Mm -hmm. Like the theater district or Central Park. Uh Now, we're calling it Hell's Kitchen, and we'll explain why. But for many decades, those in the real estate business would perhaps prefer that you call it by another name, Clinton, which is named for the largest park in the neighborhood, DeWitt Clinton Park. Now, of course, Clinton is north of the neighborhood of Chelsea. So, you know, back in the 90s... (laughs) I know where this is going. (laughs) It was Chelsea Clinton. We all had a big laugh about that in the 1990s. But... uh, And Chelsea Clinton herself actually, I believe, lives on Gramercy Park. (laughs) Right. Not even anywhere near here. Why didn't she move to the border of Chelsea and Clinton? That would have been really great. I guess because that's Penn Station. (laughs) But most people call it Hell's Kitchen today. All right. So that puts it on the map. We, We see where it is. But... Take us back to the old days. Well, sure, because 200 years ago, if you were standing in that neighborhood, you wouldn't have called it Hell's Kitchen. There's a couple names you might have used. One of them, Blumendal, (laughs) which is a Dutch word, actually a name of a region in the Netherlands, which we then get the word Bloomingdale from. You may also have called it the Great Kill District, which, I mean, is a kind of astonishing name until you realize that kill is the old Dutch word for creek. And there was indeed a little creek that emptied out into the Hudson River here. This was also an area during the 1830s that specialized in the carriage trade. So the crafting of carriages and saddles, leather goods. Of course, that industry in later decades would move over to the place called Longacre Square. Which is today's Times Square. Yes, Times Square. During this early part of the 19th century, this was all lovely estates and manors. With the introduction of the Great Plan in 1811, the residential area of New York would, of course, gravitate towards the center of the island, while the shoreline would be given over to more industrial purposes. And, of course, that access to the ports facilitated by the 1830s, the Hudson River Railroad, which pulled down the side of the water. And so that also built up the industry along here. It's certainly a very hectic and unpleasant mix of these types of industries. And we've talked about this in other shows, that by the 1850s, when you had the Hudson River Railroad, it was literally going up and down the middle of these avenues at the street level, Mm -hmm. which is still so crazy. (laughs) And some of the recently arrived immigrants would be employed as, quote, West Side cowboys who would be blowing their horns and waving Mm -hmm. their flags and letting people know to get out of 10th and 11th Avenue so that the train could pass. So when we say the Wild West, we at this point literally (laughs) mean it. (laughs) We had had cowboys. (laughs) 
And those cowboys and that railroad as it pulled down would be passing lumber and brickyards, distilleries. Mm. Of course, you know, those all those abattoirs. All right. Those cow- all those slaughterhouses. <laughs> and so you've got cattle on top of that arriving in the railway and mm-hmm. heading in to be slaughtered and to be fed to New Yorkers. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredibly aromatic area of New York City. So by the 1840s and 50s, with this development of the city, the arrival of new immigrants, the Irish and the German. Which we just discussed two episodes ago in the show on Orchard Street, where we have a wave of Irish immigration Mm -hmm. and then German immigration. So they weren't just settling in the Lower East Side. Yes, it was these tenement districts that were essentially created in areas that were sort of less well-to-do. What's interesting, though, is the Irish and the culture that they would bring would be a little bit more imprinted here in Hell's Kitchen than it would in the Lower East Side, where, of course, Eastern European and and Russian immigrants came and transformed that neighborhood. By the 1860s, this neighborhood that had once been shanties and industries was now lined with hundreds of tenements, many poorly built. And it's around this time that we believe that the neighborhood came to be called Hell's Kitchen. Which is really interesting because the same thing is happening here that was happening in the Lower East Side. You had these shanties, like you said, mm-hmm. or these rookeries, these, these rookeries, yes, one family mm-hmm. dwellings mm-hmm. that were built on one lot that would then be subdivided up into dwellings for multiple families. So people on different floors and in the basement, really on sanitary. And then some of those would remain, but many of them would be knocked down in these cheaper tenements, six floor, five, six floor constructions that could house up to 20 or or more families would go up making a lot of money for their landlords, but not really giving people very nice living conditions. And we have a lot more on that in the Orchard Street Show, if you want to hear more about that. But it was the condition of these early tenements that applied a certain kind of surly reputation to the neighborhood. And it was around this time that one theory exists about the existence of the name Hell's oh. Kitchen. Um, All the way back in 1860? In the 1860s, okay. that some believe that it reminded certain newcomers to this area of a London tenement that was called Hell's Kitchen. Now, I think this story itself might be a little bit twisted because there are other sort of evilly nicknamed neighborhoods in London, but nothing that's exactly known as Hell's Kitchen. So it could just be a little twist on perhaps another nickname that did exist at the time. So the first theory is that Hell's Kitchen is named after a similarly named neighborhood in London. Right. Mm -hmm. I believe, however, you'll be bringing a couple more convincing arguments. I will be trying to persuade you. Yes. Yes. So by 1860, with an Irish population in New York of over 200,000 people, they were pretty much crammed into Five Points, Lower East Side, and of course here in Hell's Kitchen. To quote the author Richard O'Connor, Protests against housing conditions in Hell's Kitchen first arose in 1864, but corrective measures were feeble and inadequate. A select committee subsequently reported that cattle were better housed than human beings in Hell's Kitchen Mm. because they were right next to each other. One can only imagine that such horrible living conditions would lead to a certain instability and a certain chaos, a certain chaos in a neighborhood. Well, in 1863, in the middle of the Civil War, 
the Civil War draft riots, which erupted in July of 1863, would spill over into these streets. The Irish population and other poor ethnicities were angered at New York's draft policy at this time, when essentially wealthy New Yorkers could buy themselves out of the drafts. And of course, many of those new Irish immigrants were then sent off to the battlefield and died. And we should add that at the same time that African Americans were relocating to the north and to especially New York City, where there were jobs and competing for jobs with the newly arrived Irish immigrants. And so that certainly created a lot of tension in their relationship as well. Well, so during this week, during this very intense week, the crowds, many of them originating from Hell's Kitchen, would destroy several businesses along the waterfront, including with wrecking the Hudson River Railroad in several places. But most dramatically, they would create these barricades on the streets of Hell's Kitchen. There was one barricade at 8th Avenue and 37th Street, and another one at 8th Avenue and 43rd Street. Rioters would actually cut down telegraph poles and lash them to wagons, and then created these two barricades where, at least for a time, they were able to fire back at the soldiers who were who were fighting against them. Up to 20 to 30 rioters died in Hell's Kitchen just from this particular skirmish. We have a whole show on the Civil War draft riots that you can check out for more information. It's interesting because after the Civil War, the city went through a boom. That drew more people into the city, causing more tenements to be constructed in the Lower East Side, all over town, in Hell's Kitchen. Now, when we talk about the Irish immigrants living in Hell's Kitchen, we should remember also that not everybody practiced the same religion. There were, of course, mostly Catholic Irish immigrants, but then there were also Protestant. And this created a certain Mm. tension in the street, which led on July 12th, 1870. On that day, a parade of Irish Protestants were marching up 8th Avenue to Elm Park, which is all the way up at 92nd Street. In a different neighborhood, but marching that direction. Right, Right, but they're marching through Hell's Kitchen to celebrate William III's victory over James II at the Battle of Boyne. Anyway, it's a big (laughs) Irish Protestant celebration. So they're marching in the street, and as they were going through Hell's Kitchen, they started heckling at the Irish Catholics who were looking down at them as they passed through the streets. Hundreds of these observers who were being heckled at actually followed them all the way up to the park and started a big fight in which nine people died. The next year on the anniversary of that fight, they wanted to march again, right, to make Mm -hmm. a statement. But the city, under pressure from Boss Tweed, who was really not a big friend of theirs, declined. Finally, under pressure, the governor Hoffman of New York State at the time allowed it. And on July 12th, 1871, the marchers started at 8th and 29th. So technically, just a bit south of mm-hmm, Hell's A little Kitchen. bit below. And the streets were lined with policemen and packed with Catholics ready for a fight. As they marched, the crowds threw bottles and bricks and stones. And the police turned and responded with clubs and eventually firearms. So already this is easily one of the most violent parades in New York City history. So what happened next? Well, they tried to continue moving moving down 8th Avenue. They finally making their way over to 5th Avenue and then down to 14th and somehow they made it all the way to Astor Place. But the whole way this parade battled with the police and the crowds, it was ugly. At the end of the day, three police would die from this and more than 60 others died in the melee. 
It was a huge scandal. It's called the Orangemen Riots because the Orangemen is the term for the Irish Protestants. And this was 1870 and 1871. That's right, in July. So we've barely started the show here, and we've had chaos riots that are based on social and religious tensions. Right now we're crossing paths a little bit with, of course, one of my favorite neighborhoods of the mm-hmm. 19th century, the Tenderloin. Right? right. So would you consider Hell's Kitchen to be part of the Tenderloin? Well, it's difficult to say because, again, borders are a little bit ambiguous. But I think that most people would agree that the Tenderloin, which was the city's red light and entertainment district, which had, you know, all the houses of ill repute and the brothels and the gambling parlors and the dance halls. All the fun stuff. All the good times. (laughs) Most of that was located east of here from basically 23rd to 42nd Street, but between 5th and 7th Avenues. Mm -hmm. So kind of today's from Madison Square Park up to about Times Square. Yes, Herald Square, all around there. Right. So Hell's Kitchen, for the most part, is to the west of here. But certainly shares in a little bit of that vice. Oh, yeah. In fact, some of the vice sort of bridged the gap between the two <laughs> neighborhoods, sort of as an ambassador of vice. How helpful. Yes, there was a street, actually, 39th Street, between 7th and 8th, called Soubrette Row, which was a string of brothels run by various French madams, which were infamous, actually famous around the country for their scandalous activities by the 1890s. Now, the same street... 39th Street. Soubrette Row. Soubrette okay. Row, yes. Okay. If you continued on 39th Street, you would get to some of the most scandalous of the tenements that were actually between 10th and 11th Avenue on that same street. But don't cross 11th because that's where all the slaughterhouses are, okay? <laughs> you don't want to so, go that far. And But you could smell it on this block. From between 10th and okay. 11th, you could look down and see at the corner where the blood was literally running in the streets eastward from the slaughterhouses. The stench in the air. So from Soubrette Row to Slaughter Row, essentially. That's right. And in between, who would have guessed that there were some like <laughs> messy tenements? But there were. In fact, this string of tenements was called Battle Row because it was so notorious. But again, this is just one street in a whole grid of tenements. So if you were looking overhead, you would have just seen row after row after row after row of these tenement blocks. But here on 39th Street between 10th and 11th was Battle Row. One of these, I'm going to read you Mm -hmm. a, a story from the New York Times, August 15th, 1881. The headline, Wounded by a Brother Officer. The tramps on the west side congregate in two dilapidated buildings known as Hell's Kitchen and the House of Blazes in West 39th Street near 10th Avenue. They are an unruly lot, and the officer who has this beat is compelled to be harsh. So it goes on to tell the story of Officer Andrew Smith of the 20th Precinct, who was kind of the neighborhood cop. Well, at 2 o'clock, quote, a sham fight near the Tramps Resort deceived him, and he rushed into a throng of men and women only to be set upon by them, disarmed, thrown down, kicked, and beaten. Smith made a loud outcry, and Officer Fredericks, who was on an adjoining post, ran to 39th Street, club in hand, and upon reaching the crowd, felt an overwhelming desire to strike someone. Smith was on his knees, and Fredericks, with more zeal than discretion, dealt him a stunning blow on the head. The club struck Smith on his forehead just above the left eye, and he was so severely injured that he was sent to Roosevelt Hospital in an ambulance. He will be on the sick list for some time. Wow, those tramps. Well, except that he ended up getting smacked by the other officer. But yes, but, you know, we're bearing the lead here in in terms of this story. 
The Times referred in 1881 on August 15th to this particular tenement building as Hell's Kitchen. So that individual building was named Hell's Kitchen, but could be the source for calling the entire neighborhood Hell's Kitchen. I'm going with that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at this story <laughs> myself. And they do also mention the House of Blazes, which is another infamous tenement, which was next door, which was known as a place where people would lure innocents in with the offer of a free drink and then light them on fire. That's grotesque. That's horrible. Although I have to say there are probably some places in Hell's Kitchen that you could call House of Blazes today. (laughs) Well, there is Flaming Saddles on Ninth Avenue. (laughs) They only light the shots there on fire, I think. You're in safer hands there, I believe. But anyway, the New York Times called it Hell's Kitchen in 1881. In August, right. In the next month, they would write another article where they would say Hell's Kitchen a most appropriate name is situated on West 39th Street between 9th and 10th Avenues on the north side of the street. So they're actually giving like the geo <laughs> coordinates of this place. It is built upon a rock which serves as the floor and sidewall in some of the apartment. Vice in its most repulsive form thrives here, despite the efforts of the police to root out the hordes of vagrants, petty thieves, and utterly depraved prostitutes who make the locality their headquarters. That is a vibrant description of what I imagine several blocks probably were kind of like this. Right. It wasn't just these two tenements. There were also nearby tenements nicknamed the Barracks, the Sebastopol, and Abattoir Row. There is another theory that you'll come across if you look into the history of the name of Hell's Kitchen about a certain Dutch Fred. Have you... (laughs) Have you come Dutch across Fred. Dutch Fred? I've never met a Dutch Fred. I have, Well, they usually go by Frederick Fred, oh. or Friedrich. I might know a couple of Friedrichs. Yeah. Well, here's the story. There are two policemen who are patrolling near 39th and 10th, the same intersection. Mm-hmm. Always, 39th must have been bad. <laughs> One of them is an experienced cop called Dutch Fred. He's out patrolling with an underling who says to him, this place is hell itself, to which Dutch Fred turns and responds... <laughs> Hell's a mild climate. This is Hell's Kitchen, no less. Hell's Kitchen, not Hell's Basement or Living Room or Parlor, even. Hell's Basement is much cooler than Hell's Kitchen. (laughs) Unless there's something wrong with your basement, Greg. (laughs) Hey, I got a boiler down there, you know? (laughs) Yes, but it should be insulated. I know something about this. Well, I I think I like that story perhaps the best. Because I do like a story with an old yarn with some funny-sounding voices attached to it. Well... Thank you. And actually, the neighborhood would have a rich theatrical history coming its way, but we're getting ahead of uh ourselves. Another place that comes from this era in the 1860s is still open today. It's the Landmark Tavern, which opened in 1868 at the corner of 11th and West 46th Street. Now, you could go in, and I think that we should go in as soon as possible for a nice cold beer. I agree. Yes. Did you know that there's a high probability, Greg, that it's haunted by a whole range of ghosts, <laughs> including... I'm not surprised. <laughs> including a Hollywood star, George Raft, who grew mm-hmm. up nearby, but also by a young Irish immigrant who died on the third floor, a young woman, and also by a Civil War veteran who died in a bathtub on the second mm. floor, and that bathtub is still there. Very spooky. But even if you don't believe in ghosts, it's actually a great place to grab a drink. And it's one of the oldest continually operating establishments in Manhattan, is certainly in Hell's Kitchen. Now, you talked about the tragic Civil War draft riots that occurred in the neighborhood. Sadly, if unsurprisingly, these tensions would remain in the neighborhood for decades. 
and would really come to a head in 1900. Again, these are tensions between the Irish-American immigrants and the African-American population that were settling in New York City in the areas where they could most cheaply find apartments, which would be in these run-down tenements in Hell's Kitchen. And they were simmering as they were competing for the same jobs here well into the 20th century. A spark that set off tragic consequences happened on August 12th, 1900, when Arthur Harris, a young African-American resident, was in the neighborhood and accosted a policeman who was Irish and in plain clothes, so out of uniform, who he believed was accosting his girlfriend on the street. The policeman attacked Arthur, which led Arthur to fight back with a knife, again, not knowing he was a policeman, and then fleeing the scene, racing back to his mother's house in Washington, D.C. The officer died just a couple days later after he was stabbed by Mr. Harris. And that's in August of 1900, so almost 115 years ago, right now. And it happened during a heat wave in New York as tensions were high. The day of the funeral, the situation cracked when an altercation occurred between an African-American man and an Irish-American at the funeral. The streets erupted into rioting and violence, and most African-Americans stayed inside fearful for their lives. They stayed off the streets. I have the report from the New York Times of that particular event with the headline, Race Riots on West Side. Quote, for four hours last night, Ace Avenue from 30th to 42nd Street was a scene of the wildest disorder that this city has witnessed in years. Jumping ahead, quote, the hard feeling which has been smoldering for many years and which received fresh fuel by the death of policeman Thorpe burst forth last night into a race riot, which was not subdued until the reserve force of four police precincts, numbering in all over 100 men, were called to the scene and succeeded in clearing the streets by a liberal use of their nightsticks, unquote. And this tension and these riots would last for days. And when it was over, hundreds of people were injured. A very tragic ominous way to open the new century here in Hell's Kitchen. And many historians suggest that this is one of the key events that motivated and accelerated the move of the African-American population northward up into Harlem, where they could, frankly, feel more secure. Wow. So we have thus far focused on some very dire, dangerous, downright evil events in yes. Hell's Kitchen's history, living up to that name already. I hope this story gets a little bit more fun. Well, it's going to get a lot worse before it gets better. That's all I'm going to say. We'll get to the story of the Gophers and the 20th century history of Hell's Kitchen after the commercial break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. 
It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And now back to the show. You know, Tom, for just a second, let's turn away from crime and violence for just a little bit here, right? Do we have to? (laughs) I know it'll be rough, but we're talking a residential neighborhood here, Hell's Kitchen. I mean, there's there's industry, of course, still on the water and would be for decades. But at the start of the 20th century, tens of thousands of people live in this area. And it's not a very well-planned district. And there's not much breathing room. They don't have the Hudson River Parkway to go bike or jog along. But starting in the 20th century would be some major construction projects that would shape the neighborhood, that would destroy many parts of the neighborhood. For instance, in November of 1910 was the opening of Pennsylvania Station and those elaborate tunnels under Manhattan and the rivers that were basically this huge construction project in the early 1900s. That was just the first major tumult of the neighborhood. But then on the east side of the neighborhood, old Longacre Square, that mm-hmm. old carriage industry, well, mm-hmm. by 1904, it was Times Square and was the focus of New York entertainment, media, and nightlife. And the subway and public transit would bring people to that neighborhood, but would change the dynamics of the east side of Hell's Kitchen. And since I'm talking public transit here, I sh- we forgot to mention that the 9th Avenue elevated train is actually up by this time and would be here until 1940. That bifurcates Hell's Kitchen here. <laughs> well, great. Yeah, I was not expecting the use of bifurcate um, right there. Not to mention that there was still the Hudson River Railroad going up 10th and 11th Avenue. 
for decades in the 20th century. I mean, this actually kept people from enjoying the waterfront for obvious reasons because you couldn't get over there. Because you had to run for your life across the railroad tracks and try to avoid the cattle being hauled Mm -hmm. into the slaughterhouse. Well, the city, understanding that, did try to do something about it. But if you ask me, handled it in the worst possible way. So up on 52nd Street and 11th Avenue, there were these two old estates, like from the early 19th century, these old mansions. One of them was the old Hopper Farm. They were still up there perched upon a hill. Well, in 1905, they just tore them down. So could you imagine have we still had this beautiful mansion? But we don't because they tore it down and constructed DeWitt Clinton Park. Um, which is basically the only major park in the neighborhood, named for DeWitt Clinton as an honor to his contribution in the opening of the Erie Canal. When he was governor. And where is this exactly? It's between 52nd and 54th Street and 11th Avenue and 12th Avenue. Now, contained within this park was the very first community garden in New York City. It was a children's garden. So children could go there and plant vegetables, plant flowers. There were other progressive policies that played out throughout the neighborhood with varying degrees of success. And especially down further towards the Tenderloin, there was a lot of mass slum clearance at this time. Interestingly, over by the water was a so-called recreation pier that was built on 50th Street. Which is over where the other ships were coming in. So a recreation pier, I guess, is just a place where you could go swimming in the Hudson? Yeah, you could go swimming. They had concessions, that type of thing. To quote from a source from 1906, the multiplication of vacation schools, public parks, and recreation piers gives a chance for boys to work off compressed energy, which, if it has no vent, will begin by breaking city ordinances and from misdemeanors will break into felonies, unquote. Mm. So, so it seems like we're again dealing with bored youths. Yeah, and this wasn't good enough this recreation pier, for the gangs were still rampant and still concentrated here in Hell's Kitchen. And so I would like to introduce to you, Tom, and to you listeners, the dominant street gang of the early 20th century here in Hell's Kitchen. They were the Gophers. Okay, this is just calling for a pun, Greg. So Go for it, Tom. You can do it. <laughs> it's all right. I stole your pun thunder there. You stole my punder. <laughs> Um, They they were named the Gophers because of their preference of meeting and living in basements, which, if you ask me, like, if I had a gang, that sounds fairly pragmatic. Again, it's cooler (laughs) in the basements. They actually traced their name back to an earlier version of the gang from the 1890s. They were the preeminent gang in Hell's Kitchen and would often align with other gangs in nearby neighborhoods, creating a rudimentary criminal network. So what were these gophers up to? Were they just up to, you know, normal hoodlum activity? Were well, they just petty thieves? What were they well, doing? Well, they were a little bit more sophisticated than that. But Upsetting the- fruit carts? <laughs> more than fruit carts. Much more than fruit carts. But the one thing I want to reinforce first is this pure chaos of this group, because that's kind of what makes it a little dangerous. Mm. To quote from our friend Herbert Asbury in Gangs of New York, quote, The gophers were so turbulent and so fickle in their allegiance that their leaders seldom retained the crown for more than a few months at a time. So so the leaders couldn't even control the gophers. No, no. Some of the more notable gopher warriors included men with such names as Gugu Knox, Stumpy Malarkey, and Happy Jack Mulraney, who was known for his rictus face, which was locked into a permanent smile. Once... 
old Happy Jack went down to a saloon on 10th Avenue and shot the bar owner, Patty the Priest, for making a disparaging joke. They were so popular that they were actually lady gophers, an auxiliary group of female gang members. Gophets? <laughs> lady gophers. They call them lady, lady gophers. gophers. Led by a woman named Battle Annie, who they often called the queen of Hell's Kitchen. But the best-known leader of the Gophers was a poor, tragic criminal named One Lung Curran. He got that name, of course, from the tuberculosis, which would later kill him. Press reports would call him the godfather of his day. He was that powerful and well-known. His best-known legend that surrounds his image involves a dastardly method of impressing his girlfriend. So one winter, she needed a coat Okay, she didn't have a coat and it was very cold. Okay. So he was walking down the street and saw a police officer who was wearing a fine coat. So he just thought, well, my girl should have that one. So he knocked the officer unconscious, returned the coat to his girlfriend, who then cut it and refit it. So all the gangster's girlfriends wanted this kind of coat, you know, that you could refit from a police officer. So there was a spate of violence that happened where many police officers had their coats stolen. Oh, how odd. But it also seems kind of impractical, right? Because you could spot the criminals. You could just follow the jackets, right? Yeah. I imagine that these women were great seamstresses and could refit it in a way that made them unrecognizable. So one lung sounds vicious. He was quite vicious, which would explain the sort of escalation in their crime, because the gophers would focus their misdeeds on the West Side Industries here, and in particular, the railroad. They would pillage railroad cars with such frequency that the New York Central Railroad, which operated this Hudson line at Mm -hmm. this period, had to actually hire a sophisticated private police force to fight the gophers hand-to-hand in the street. So the gophers would just jump aboard these these passing trains and steal what, whatever was on board? Yes, yeah, steal it and then sell it off to someone else, and that's how they would make a lot of their money. But wait, why didn't the New York Central Railroad just get the policemen from the neighborhood involved in this? Well, that's that, what they're supposed to do, right? Yeah, but this is the tricky nature of law enforcement in the early 20th century, where some of these gangs had special deals or, you know, were palsies with some of the actual police officers and often the police officers would be irish also so there would maybe be a little like you scratch my back kind of thing going on so i'll pet your gopher (laughs) so they had to so they had to actually hire and create their own police force and so the funny thing though is that many of these special squad officers were actually ex- New York police officers, many of whom entered into this new squad to get a little bit of revenge. Like perhaps some of them had gotten their coats stolen by the gophers, for instance. Mm. They were so rough. I mean, they pushed back very hard against the gophers that they're actually chiefly responsible for the elimination eventually of gophers violence here in Hell's Kitchen. Although that certainly would not wipe out gang activity in the neighborhood. Oh, no. Actually, one of the most famous gangsters in New York City would actually be born into the streets from the last days of the Gophers. His name is Oni Madden, or as they call him, Oni the Killer, from Liverpool. He came to New York and took control of one faction of the Gophers and went on a bloody spree through the alleys and streets of Hell's Kitchen. During Prohibition... In 1920s, crime syndicates would get, of course, more sophisticated than these regular street gangs. Around this time, 
Oni reappeared. Um, after doing some time upstate at Sing Sing, he became a Hell's Kitchen bootlegger. Mm-hmm. The most well-known bootlegger. And Hell's Kitchen would be considered his territory, even by the more organized crime bosses. So, during Prohibition, which was a law that passed in 1919, banning the sale and consumption of mm-hmm. alcohol in the United States, Hell's Kitchen was sort of like the headquarters of illegal booze production and distribution in New York because they had all of these old warehouses and things oh, that were yeah. serving the railroad. So where better to set up shop and, and distribute? It was so handy. It was in Midtown <laughs> West right there. Uh-huh. There were hundreds of speakeasies then. Uh, I so- saw a quote, actually, more speakeasies than children in Hell's Kitchen. That's an extraordinary number, if you think about it. Than children? Yeah. The children were obviously over on the recreational pier, I guess. Or working in the, in the distilleries. Oh, yeah, unfortunately. All of these speakeasies, these hundreds and hundreds of speakeasies, would be greatly served with customers that would arrive from a new center in the neighborhood in 1925, the construction of Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. So it moved up from around Madison Square up to 8th Avenue between 49th and 50th Street. So not the location of today's Madison Square Garden. No, this was the interim Madison Square Garden, although it was there for over four decades. So by the mid-20th century here, just imagine the swirl of everyday life that's happening, all the work that's occurring over on the docks. You also had the New York Passenger Terminal, which would bring up those ocean liners, up here, which we mentioned in our Chelsea Piers podcast. Mm-hmm. So, and you still had the slaughterhouse as well into the 1960s. It's funny because with all of these changes, today above 42nd Street, you can kind of imagine a little bit what life might have been like 70, 80 years ago even. But below 42nd Street, it went through such drastic changes that it's almost impossible to tell because you had colossal projects like the Lincoln Tunnel, which opened in the 1930s, and then even more damaging to the neighborhood, but more beneficial to New York, was the Port Authority bus terminal. And in constructing the Lincoln Tunnel, that would require all of these on and off ramps, right? Mm -hmm. Circling around, as would the Port Authority. But in the case of the Lincoln Tunnel, many of these giant ramps would just slice right through entire blocks of tenements, requiring Mm -hmm. them to just be completely raised. One of these blocks was 39th Street that we talked about. Battle Row. So just think about what happened to that neighborhood, just decimated. And it certainly wasn't done by accident. I mean, these areas of town were identified as being blights and perfect place to put something like an off-ramp. Well, and it was also just a logical spot to put them, obviously. You've got a tunnel, and it's got to come out on one of the sides of the (laughs) island. At the same time, you had changes in demographics and in uh, the entire shipping industry. Many people who were employed in the Hell's Kitchen neighborhood had been working over on the docks as longshoremen. Well, the nature of shipping changed a lot in the mid-century and after World War II. With the introduction of containerized shipping, you no longer needed all of these longshoremen to haul things on and off of all these ships, and a lot of people lost jobs. Mm. And really, a lot of these piers were no longer necessary either. And they were abandoned, yeah. And Mm -hmm. and they were abandoned, as we talked about in Chelsea Piers. Um, And at the same time, rents were tumbling down as people were underemployed and buildings were falling into disrepair. Some Irish Americans were holding on in the neighborhood. The gangs were getting stronger. And an entire new 
new population moved into the city after World War II, those would be the Puerto Rican immigrants coming to the city in search of a new life and new jobs and settling down for the most part in areas with the lowest rent where they could afford to pay. And that was often over here in neighborhoods like Hell's Kitchen. And that obviously didn't sit very well with many of the Irish gangs who, had, let's say, had some territorial issues. Sure. These tensions would be the, the core conceit of the 1957 musical West Side Story, which, although it was set a little bit farther north in Lincoln Center, still dealt with tensions that uh, Puerto Rican immigrants were finding as they tried to settle on the west side of Manhattan. And I love, Tom, that we're talking about violence and you've managed to bring a Broadway musical into the show. Craig, <laughs> there's a place for us somewhere. There's a place for us. No, but it, it is actually appropriate because West Side Story would play at the Majestic Theater, which was only a couple blocks away on 44th Street between 7th and 8th Avenue. That's where it premiered, and that is today the seemingly permanent home of Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> All right, now I got two musicals in. <laughs> Hell's Kitchen was so synonymous with gang life and gang activity that in 1964, Marvel Comics created one of their most iconic characters as a crusader on patrol in Hell's Kitchen, the character whose name is Daredevil. Interesting. When was that? In the 60s? Yes, in the early 60s. So in the 60s, the best-known gang in real life in Hell's Kitchen were the Westies. These were Irish Americans who ruled Hell's Kitchen for decades all the way up until really the end of the 1980s. They were known as the Irish Mafia. For many years, this gang operated under the direction of their boss, Mickey Spillane, who was referred to as the Gentleman Gangster. Now, this is not Mickey Spillane, the author. The crime novelist? That would be an incredible coincidence. No, no. There is another Mickey Spillane who's a crime novelist. This is the Irish-American gangster. The one who's doing the crime, not writing about it. And under Mickey, the Westies made their money the old-fashioned gangster way, you know, through racketeering, gambling, loan sharking, robberies, and kidnappings. (laughs) He was smart about it because early on he married Maureen McManus, who was the daughter of a prominent Democratic powerhouse family. So that gave him a certain amount of political protection. Almost hearkening back to, like, mid-19th century-style politics. Meanwhile, he was fighting with the Italian mafia over control of the Javits Center. Now, the Javits Center Mm. was a huge project, which had been proposed and it would take a while to construct and not even open until 1986. But Manhattan's largest convention center, opening up in Hell's Kitchen, in the Westies territory, that was his. He wanted control over who got contracts, just... Think of all the kickback opportunities that a convention center in New York presented. So he battled with the, with the mafia, and at the same time, he was battling inside the Westies with another less gentlemanly gangster named Jimmy Coonan. Coonan then stepped up to control the Westies. Well, all of this mess would be cleaned up in the 1980s by a very aggressive federal prosecutor with a mission to crack down on mob activity in New York. And in a series of dramatic trials and convictions in 1986, 1987, and 1988, he would clear out 
a lot of New York's organized crime activity, including wiping out basically all of the Westies. And he was? Who was his name? That prosecutor's name was Rudy Giuliani. Uh, well, this must have been one of the reasons he was able to sweep in and become New York's mayor in the 1990s. Right. So New Yorkers knew of him and felt greatly indebted to him, many of them did, because he had wiped out organized crime, not just here, but all over town and also most notably down around the Fulton Street fish markets. And then pair that with the cleanup of Times Square that was started actually under Mayor Dinkins, although, of course, Mayor Giuliani would see a lot of that through completion. The fact that Times Square just next door would clean up dramatically in the 1990s and that organized crime was for the most part gone from Hell's Kitchen would usher in a giant wave of gentrification that really had started in the 80s when it was still bad, but really picked up speed in the 1990s. So when I started working in Times Square in the 1990s and some of this quote-unquote cleanup of Times Square was happening, Mm -hmm. we would go out to Hell's Kitchen and there was still something kind of edgy about it, but it was at that time, I mean, these stories that we've told, they seem like another place. You know, we would go out in the bars along 9th Avenue, but we didn't really go farther west. I did go to a lot of theaters around this time. There were a lot of smaller theaters that opened up in the 80s and 90s in this period. Although, as you walk to those theaters, you'd still be passing by these old tenements that were Mm -hmm. built. And still today, when you go to Hell's Kitchen, really what we think about, say, if we take 42nd Street to 57th Street and between 8th Avenue and the West Side Highway as sort of the parameters here, that is block after block of old tenements still. Yeah, over 100 years old. And the reason that most of those are still around and that that really gives a defining character to the neighborhood is because in 1969, after the demolition of Madison Square Garden, the the one up on 8th Avenue and 49th and 50th Mm -hmm. Street, and after the demolition of Penn Station, don't forget that preservation activists in the city and the Municipal Arts Society and other preservation groups in defense of New York's old structures that needed somebody to fight for them, people were starting to look at these neighborhoods a little bit differently and think that, wait a second, if we don't do anything, they're all going to disappear. So in 1969, the city took action and created the, quote, Special Clinton District. The Clinton District. Right, back to Clinton. This is really where the term Clinton comes from that you mentioned like six hours because, ago. I mean, I should add that this name, Hell's Kitchen, people fought against it actually for decades. I mean, it has very negative connotations. It's only recently that it has a little historical cachet to it. And because the neighborhood had been home to so much vice, people didn't really put up a fight when block after block after block of tenements were ripped down for the construction of those other big projects you were Mm -hmm. talking about. But now at almost 1970s, people kind of looked around and thought, oh man, nothing's going to be left if we don't do something about this. So they, they set up this new district and they actually came up with four different areas. Between 10th and 11th Avenue was for mixed use. That was for residential manufacturing. West of that, west of 11th Avenue was actually for manufacturing. Along 8th Avenue, between 42nd and 57th Street, was really, like, mixed. Developers could build larger buildings there, and so you see a lot of those larger buildings today and bigger hotels. But the big area, the Mm -hmm. most interesting part, was between 43rd Street and 56th Street. So really just north of those towers that were built across from the Port Authority. Mm -hmm. 
from 43rd Street all the way up to 56th Street and between 8th Avenue and 10th Avenue. That is the preservation area, and buildings could not be built more than 66 feet tall or seven stories tall, whichever was shorter. And that has a unique feel, especially because it is right next to an area with the tallest skyscrapers and the newest skyscrapers and the shiniest skyscrapers. And here, next to Hell's Kitchen, you have this oddly residential, charming Mm. neighborhood that was preserved by this districting. And, you know, let's not, like, take people out of this equation. Next time you go out to a bar or you go to a restaurant along 9th or 10th Avenue and you're walking up and down the streets and you're looking at six-floor tenement buildings and you're going to your favorite Thai restaurant or French bistro on the bottom and you think this is a charming neighborhood, it's charming because people fought to protect these blocks. It didn't just happen on its own. So speaking of restaurants, I mean, when I think of, of Hell's Kitchen, I think of I do think of a lot of Thai restaurants up and down Ninth Avenue, but I also think of that one street that's called Restaurant Row. Yes, that would be West 46th Street between 8th and 9th that was officially opened and branded as Restaurant Row in 1973 by Mayor Lindsay and is literally lined chock-a-block with restaurants. There's a lot of Italian restaurants from that period. Well, some go back even further, including Barbetta. I don't know if you've ever been to this uh, Italian restaurant along the row. It was actually a speakeasy during Prohibition, Mm. so it harkens back to that area. And then a much more recent addition uh, that I wanted to just call out is Bar Centrale. Have we ever gone there for a drink? It's above Joe Allen's. Oh, yeah. And it's... Be- oh, that's right. <laughs> well, you always remember going. You never remember coming out of it. But 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 uh, Bar Centrale is above Joe Allen's behind an unmarked door. So you feel like you're going into a brownstone, somebody's apartment building, mm-hmm. and you push it open, and then you're greeted by a hostess who tells you that she doesn't have a table for you. <laughs> but if you make a reservation, you can actually get a drink there. But it still, I think, um, takes some inspiration yeah. from the days of the speakeasies. A little wink of the Oni Madden days. There is one more notable resident in Hell's Kitchen, Greg, mm-hmm. who we have not given any attention to. I'm speaking, of course, about the horses of Central Park. <laughs> they reside in Hell's Kitchen, right? The stables are still there. The stables are not just there. They're in use, yes. They're west of 11th Avenue, um, over by the West Side Highway, in Hell's Kitchen. Residents of Hell's Kitchen are quite used to hearing the familiar sounds of the horses going to work in the morning and mm. arriving home from a rough day pulling carriages in Central Park clip-clapping their way through the streets back to the stables. And that actually ties us back to the very beginning of the show when the neighborhood was, in the 1830s, part of the carriage trade. So from carriage to carriage, although this story, like so many others, is alive and kicking because Mayor de Blasio has just said nay to horses (laughs) in Central Park. So we shall see if they're all going to face an early retirement soon. So that ends our epic battle, epic story, epic history of Hell's Kitchen and the Wild West. You can go for more on the blog (laughs) at BoweryBoysHistory.com, where Greg will post lots of photos and etchings and linotypes of various gangs of Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, actually, I have a picture or two of the gophers. That's BoweryBoysHistory.com. We have more readings from various books, sources, and newspapers about the gangs of Hell's Kitchen, which we will be offering as a special bonus podcast to our patrons. That will be available next week, and you can gain access to these bonus podcasts by joining us at patreon.com slash 
Bowery Boys. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Bowery Boys. In addition, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter and follow the progress of our upcoming Bowery Boys book by following me on Instagram, where you can follow along as we do research on the book, going to various neighborhoods and exploring and finding unexpected and surprising things that we're going to put in that book, which is coming out next year. So thanks for joining Wait, us. Greg. Yes? So how did Hell's Kitchen get its name? Hell if I know. <laughs> <laughs> So have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.